everyone. Welcome to the Monday After the Day of Learning podcast. I'm Alicia Halliday, Chief Science Officer of the Autism Science Foundation. Now, if you missed the ASF Day of Learning this year, this is a short recap. It's nothing like watching it in person, and of course, we'll post the video soon. But if you can't wait, take the next 15 minutes or so, and I'll do a rundown. First, we chose topics based on what you all, or y'all, told us you wanted to hear about. And of course, the number one thing going on in all of our lives this year is the COVID-19 pandemic. Sorry, I wish it were different, but this is what it is. And although things are easing up and cases are going down and people are getting vaccinated, we're not back to where we used to be in, say, very early 2020. Dr. Pam Feliciano from Safari presented feedback from families in Spark, or Simon's Powering Autism Research Knowledge, told them about and how they were suffering and how they needed help. Well, what kind of help? First, moms were mostly answering the questions about how they were doing and what they needed. Side note, this is not surprising. No shade to the dads out there, but it's typically the moms that are answering surveys or filling out information about their kids. Admitted, it is true. But if you're from a two-dad household or a single dad, you're probably that 6% of men or dads that filled it out around the person with ASD if they were under 18. Now, how were people affected by the pandemic? Well, in the last year, around 20% of people, obviously early on it was less and later on it was more, reported that they had a COVID-19 infected person in their household. In April 2020, it was like 1% and then it went up to like 20% in April 2021. Unfortunately, as the year went on, not only did the percent positivity in the community increase, so did the number of people who knew someone who had died. But things are getting better. While 86% reported service disruption in March 2020, in March 2021, that number dropped to 45%. The survey also gave a glimpse into vaccine hesitancy. While it focused on autism families, from the numbers I've seen, they are no more or less likely to have concerns about getting vaccinated compared to those without an ASD diagnosis. Lots of younger people think they won't get sick, and as restrictions are loosening and younger and younger people are eligible, you can't even give the vaccine away in some places. But again, this has improved. In November, when nobody knew anything other than that there was a vaccine coming, the rates of vaccine hesitancy were a lot higher than they are now, which is about 25%. 25% of people said that they would definitely not or probably not get vaccinated. Why not vaccinate? The number one reason was a concern about safety. There were also more concerns from families who felt that vaccination had caused their child's autism. And not surprisingly, those who were not socially distanced and wearing masks, who were very few, by the way, they were more likely to refuse vaccination. If we don't all get vaccinated and we are physically able to, or a doctor gives us a chance to do so, then we're going to be fighting this pandemic for a long, long time. That's the mantra of the year. While we can ask families directly about their experiences, we also need to be mindful of talking to clinicians who help these families about what's working and not working during the pandemic. Some of the lessons about helping families during the pandemic could help them when the pandemic is over. Lonnie Zweigenbaum from the University of Alberta talked about some of the conversations 
he has been having with clinicians about what's working and what's not working and what could change and get better thanks to the lessons that we've learned about autism diagnosis through the pandemic. Now, clinicians are struggling too. They're struggling to find what helps you and how you can get services in this mess. They're trying to keep up with demand for evaluating ASD or diagnosing it. Remember, the pandemic didn't change the prevalence of autism. The needs of the families and individuals were actually magnified. So they're rethinking the way that they do assessments and what assessments mean. Too often, guidelines and insurance rules tell clinicians what assessments need to be done. These standardized instruments are used as a guide for a trained clinician to identify strengths and weaknesses in each person. Trained clinicians use these instruments to help them identify the correct diagnosis and types within a diagnosis so the person gets the best help from both their family and services outside the home. So the family understands where the person has strengths and where they need help so that they can get the right services and that they can convince insurance companies to pay for those services across the lifespan. Clinicians are a resource to families. The pandemic has caused clinicians to rethink everything. When they're doing these tele-evaluations, which they're forced to do in the pandemic, how do they do them to get what they need? One advantage of these assessments done through telehealth is the opportunity to see the child or the individual in their home environment. Well, that can be an advantage to the clinician to see what's going on in an environment other than a clinical lab. Some families don't really like that. They don't want the clinician to come into their home. And even with these telehealth modifications, there are still wait lists. It hasn't shortened anything. In fact, at the beginning, there were even more problems because clinicians tried to adapt measures and also had to work with families who didn't understand or even have the technology to meet via telehealth or the internet. Is there a silver lining? Well, kind of. This has triggered clinicians who help kids with autism to prioritize the information they need, determine what they can get remotely, which may in fact address issues around travel and time off of work for some families, and think about what really needs to be done in person and get to brass tacks. Sometimes clinical evaluations are the tail being wagged by the dog of the educational system and the insurance companies. In fact, clinicians need to be the one in charge of determining what services are needed, how often they can be administered, and allow families access to other experts as needed. But if telehealth wasn't bad enough for families, what about families who are at the intersection of autism, being Black, Hispanic, LGBTQ, other, or even all of the above? This means people are navigating different identities at the same time, being autistic and poor, autistic and Black, autistic and transgender. Brian Boyd from University of Kansas explains that one established problem in the community is that Black people are less likely to be diagnosed with autism, and if they are, they are diagnosed later. Both the quality and the accessibility of services are different for Black children and their families. In order to address this, we need to consider pillars of social justice. These pillars are equity, participation, diversity, and human rights. This is going to require an entire movement of social justice, and we've seen more recently after the murder of George Floyd and the slap on the head recognition by the community that this happens all the time, and we've put up with it for way too long. A huge safety problem in Black kids with autism 
is something that a black woman with a child with autism noted. She was afraid her child was going to be considered oppositional or defiant or aggressive, and her child's behavior would be misinterpreted as criminal rather than part of a developmental disorder. And this is a very common concern in the black community that's warranted. A black boy with autism is at a higher risk of getting arrested or jailed because his behavior is misinterpreted as something dangerous. Also, fellow white people, we all need to sit down and realize that we're privileged. And we may carry biases that we deny on the outside, but we need to think hard about how to even acknowledge that they are there. Clinicians are mostly white. They could have biases that they don't even know about. It's nothing white people need to be ashamed of. We just need better awareness and we just need to do better. How do we solve this problem? We need to focus on the inclusion of diverse researchers, more voices of autism from families of different racial and ethnic backgrounds, and research design should always give a voice to stakeholders. It's easy to let things backslide, but if we do, things will stay as they've always been, which is not acceptable as a society and is not helping everyone with autism that needs it. On a more somber note, if you can get more somber than racial and ethnic disparities, is a terrible issue facing many families with autism. Sudden unexplained death from epilepsy. ASF friend Lauren and Ed Rimland were hit hard by this this year as their son Jake died from SUDEP. Dr. Sarah Spence from Children's Hospital of Boston called her talk, What You Need to Know About SUDEP and ASD, but actually qualified it to say it should read, You Need to Know About SUDEP and ASD. She started with the question, do parents and caregivers actually know enough about this topic? The answer was absolutely not. There's a lot of work that needs to be done about it, but the first step is for families to know what it is, and it's a risk. It isn't a risk of autism per se, it's a risk of epilepsy, which many people with autism have, about 20%. People with autism aren't more likely to have just one type of seizure, and sometimes subtle seizures can be hard to differentiate from certain behaviors. They can start in early childhood, And they're usually not too hard to treat. Things like intellectual disability, being female, and having a genetic syndrome are risk factors for epilepsy. This is why all doctors should be ordering genetic tests for everyone who's diagnosed with autism. SUDEP is more likely to happen with uncontrolled seizures, but it can occur even with infrequent seizures. And increasing age is a risk factor. Being male and having missed doses of medications are also risk factors of SUDEP. I know people don't like the word risk factor, but we're not talking about risk factor for autism. We're talking about risk factor for death. So what is being done about this? Well, first, education. We need parents and caregivers to know about it. A survey of parents reported that only 2% didn't want to be told about what SUDEP was. And second, we need better understanding about it. We need to fill out SUDEP registries. We need cases and clinical information. We need imaging, DNA, and brain tissue from victims of SUDEP. The Epilepsy Society has a seizure action plan. Google it and download it. It doesn't prevent SUDEP, but it does help manage seizures. There are also new technologies like cameras or Fitbits or other things that are being used. ASF is very interested in the issue of technology help for people with ASD, and there's not One specific type of seizure monitoring device during sleep that we recommend, 
But we do recommend that parents talk to their pediatrician or their neurologist and see what their different options are. Some parents go so far as to sleep in the same room as their child every night. Don't just mention it to your neurologist. Demand to talk about it. It seems like every time we turn around, we hear the term, if you know one person with autism, you know one person with autism. It's getting redundant. Differences in the features and symptoms of autism in different people is actually not just a problem for research, but for services. Some groups think that certain treatments are irrelevant because they don't apply to them. Sometimes the autism community themselves are the ones that need to embrace the idea of differences across the spectrum. But how do you go about figuring out what person needs what interventions or services? This is called personalized medicine, and Dr. Shafali Jesti from UCLA focused her talk on it. Treating everyone with ASD without considering specific features, verbal ability, intellectual ability, gender, is not working. Finding the right treatment for the right person will identify new therapeutic opportunities, but they also need to be tested effectively. Now, two ways different groups of researchers are looking at differentiating different groups of autism is through genetics and also through biological markers, specifically brain activity. Let's start with genes. There's a new type of therapy which targets genes. One such example is a gene therapy which reverses a debilitating disease, not autism. It's called spinal muscular atrophy. And specific targeted treatment can help with spinal muscular atrophy, and it's being looked at for specific genetic types of ASD. Genetic studies in ASD provide two key opportunities. One, just knowing about these autism genes allows us to account for about 10 to 15% of the spectrum being accounted for by a genetic cause. Having known a genetic mutation then, number two, can sometimes lead to accelerated access to clinical care. Critical to this are partnerships between organizations and researchers. And as it turns out, we now know that the genes associated with autism converge on common pathways which affect brain development, and this means connectivity between different brain regions. If genes converge on similar pathways, can different therapies be effective across different rare genetic disorders? Maybe, hopefully, but that definitely needs more research. Another way to personalize treatment is through brain activity. Electroencephalography is a way to non-invasively measure brainwave patterns, and those with specific genetic mutations have actually different brainwave patterns than those with autism without a genetic mutation. So can brainwave patterns be used to more focused treatment? Well, actually, there's a study ongoing right now called the Autism Biomarkers for Clinical Trials to deal with that question. One challenge that Dr. Justine mentioned was access to high-quality interventions. Now, who can afford to go to a research institution, take time off of work, get in a plane, take a long drive just to get these treatments? Actually, and the reality is most research participants are white and wealthier. With very impaired children, they may not be able to travel to an in-person trial. So she updated and changed one of her studies for tuberous sclerosis, which is a genetically defined autism, which also carries a high risk of seizures, to collect information virtually and do some virtual coaching to parents. 
This led to a large change in enrollment, so more diverse families could enroll. Now, families still need time to do the delivery of the intervention to get coached, and of course, they need internet access, but this is a start, especially for families who cannot travel, period, because of expenses or the functioning level of the person in the family. She also started a program where behavioral evaluations are done at family meetings for these genetic conditions. These family meetings are a great way for families with the same genetic condition to get together once a year or once every other year to catch up, get information from scientists, talk about common problems, and it also gives researchers a chance to learn more about these families and get them involved in interventions and research studies. They've done this recently with the Duke 15Q Alliance and were able to specifically narrow down the type of motor impairments that these kids have to specific issues with gait, which now will then allow for better motor interventions to be developed. These motor differences are different than those of other disorders. Finally, the last topic we heard about was something that we hear about time and time again that you guys wanted to really hear an update on, and we were so lucky that the leading expert in this topic was on hand. The topic, cannabidiol and medical marijuana. And the speaker, Dr. Oren Davinsky, a neurologist from NYU. This is a targeted treatment that everyone is using with mixed results, mostly because, number one, it may treat only certain symptoms. Two, buying it off the shelf is probably a waste of money, and I'll explain more later. And three, there needs to be more research on it. Medical marijuana is not a synonym for cannabidiol, but cannabidiol is part of medical marijuana. Let me explain. Marijuana is made up of both cannabidiols and tetrahydrocannabidiol. Tetrahydrocannabidiol, or THC, is the psychoactive part of it. You can, and scientists have, extracted the non-psychoactive part called cannabidiol, and the FDA has actually allowed permission for purified cannabidiol, or CBD, called Epidiolex, to be used to treat some rare genetic epilepsies. This treatment is thought to work through the GPR55 receptor, serotonin receptor, and TRPV receptors. Now, CBD and THC are both anti-inflammatory, and they're both anticonvulsant. However, CBD and CBDV is cleaner for epilepsy because they're non-psychoactive. You don't get the munchies, you don't have any cognitive issues, you don't have any change in time. So how does it work? There actually is a lipid in the brain called LPI, and LPI further excites excitatory neurons. It's really kind of a nightmare for disorders where there's too much excitation and too little inhibition. This includes seizures. CBD reduces seizure activity by blocking that GPR55 receptor, which then blocks LPI. When LPI binds to GR55, it stimulates excitation and reduces inhibition. So since there's a dysregulation of inhibition and excitation in epilepsy and in autism, would CBD also work with autism? CBD is a drug metabolized in the liver. Oral absorption is not great unless you eat a fatty meal. Dose? Well, he estimated 10 milligrams per kilogram a day is the most effective dose with the least amount of side effects. Now, I just said milligrams per kilogram. So there are 2.2 pounds in a kilogram. 
So if I weigh 120 pounds, which is far from what I weigh, but say I weigh 120 pounds, that's 54 kilograms, which means I would need about 540 milligrams of CBD a day. Now it works for seizures, but not focal epilepsy. We need more data. He did summarize some of the data around CBD and THC and autism. Transdermal synthetic CBD did well with few side effects. The study was not blind, it was open label, but it also decreased self-injury in most, but also increased it in some. The same with hyperactivity, sleep problems, and anxiety. It was reduced in most people, but it did increase these symptoms in some people. There's also studies in Israel going on where CBD is mixed with THC. There was moderate improvement, but as you can expect, there were also side effects like feeling high, being hungry, and having dry mouth. And there's also a study ongoing at New York University and at Montefiore Medical Center. These are both in New York City, but if you have any interest in participating, email me and I'll put you in contact with the researchers. Now, with a mix of CBD and THC, the effects of THC could be small because CBD does block the receptor where THC acts. One caveat here, buyer beware. The public market is the wild, wild west, as Dr. Davinsky said. Gummies that you buy at a gas station probably don't have as much CBD as you think they do. As a matter of fact, I did a podcast last year where I listed the number of companies and the names of the companies that got warning letters from the FDA because the amount of CBD that they said they had in it did not match the, the, the chemical testing that they did in their own lab. So just be aware. If this is something you're looking to do, talk to your doctor. They may or may not give you a prescription for Epidiolex, or they may refer you to some sort of high-quality CBD. So this was the day of learning in 15 minutes. Please don't stop here. Each of the presentations with the visuals will be up on the ASF website soon. We had almost a 1,000 registrants, and you still have the opportunity to view them. Thanks for listening, and talk to you next week.